Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. While you turn there, I just want to ask a question. What is it that makes someone a king? What is it that makes someone a king? Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. Let's read together. Now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those through who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we, uh, I, I wanted to ask that question to begin with. What makes someone a king? Why do they become kings? I wanted to ask that question because that's what we're dealing with here. How was Jesus exalted as king for us? How does he get to that place where he's exalted? Now, there's a few ways, right? There's, in our, in our world, you have the story of King Arthur who is born into the kingly line. I just finished reading those stories to my son. Don't worry, I skipped the adult parts. But I finished reading those to my son and, and as 
we read through them, there's this evidence. Arthur is king because he was born to be king. He wields the sword of power, and he is king. And you have what made Genghis Khan king? He was ruthless, and he killed his adversaries. Why he was king? Why, why was Alexander the Great an emperor? Why was he king? Well, because he slaughtered his enemies, and he was victorious on the battlefield, and he was a brilliant tactician. He was able to marshal generals who, and there's some debate over this, whether he was brilliant or his five generals were brilliant, but he was able to marshal his generals and, and conquer. And that's what made him king. What made the Pharaoh a great king? Well, he was able to overthrow the previous dynasty and destroy their power and authority. What made these people king? They were victorious and they were mighty and they had big swords and they slaughtered people. Evidently, that's what our world thinks makes a king. That's what we see as king. When we see a conquering ruler, he comes in and he destroys the enemies. And he charges in on a horse and he destroys everyone. But our king doesn't become king that way. And it's unsettling to read the way Jesus becomes king. Because though he is going to rule, and though he is king who will conquer all the enemies, though he is that, the way he validates his kingship is by becoming us. By putting on skin and becoming the lowest. The last two, the last chapter, the last four sermons that we've had have been over Jesus being God. And that's why he's greater than the angels, because he's God. Now we're going to see Jesus is greater than the angels because he's man. And if that bothers your head to go, how can he be both God and man? Good. It's supposed to bother you. Much of what is written in Hebrews is supposed to make us pause. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. Like the warning we read last week, it's supposed to make us slightly uncomfortable. Let's dive in. And what we're going to see here, just to give you an outline of the text, is we're going to see the introduction, which is verses 5 and 6, then the text that the Hebrew author, that the author of Hebrews is going to deal with here in this first portion. And it's going to be verses uh, 6 through 8, which is Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6. So he's going to take that text, and then he's going to teach that text to you. Did you know that expositional sermons are in the Bible? Ta-da! Right here. This is it. So he gives you a text, and then he explains that text in verses 8b through verse, uh, really all the way through 18. So uh, what we're going to deal with today is we're going to look at verses we're going to concentrate on verses 5 through 13. Because what he does is he sets an introduction, he introduces the text, and then he gives you three propositions, three statements about Jesus that all say the same thing in a different way. And they're broken down in English for us really easily in paragraph form. So you can just look at your Bible. There they are. One, two, three. The author of Hebrews makes it incredibly easy for us to follow his logic. So let's dive in. First, remember last week he issues this warning about 
pay attention to Christ, lest you drift off. And if you drift off, that means death. Pay attention to Jesus. Stay on track. And remember, these were nautical terms that had to do with staying on the right part of the river, going the right way, so you wouldn't drift off into the woods or into the weeds or into the whirlpools or into death, that you wouldn't drift off, but that you would stay attentive and you would keep yourself on track, following what you have heard, the message that was declared by angels, which is Jesus saves. That's the message from the beginning. Jesus saves, he rescues. So we talked about that a good deal last week. And he issues this warning and then immediately reminds you of the perspective here in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. There are four times in this uh, book where the author reminds you that your perspective is supposed to be heaven. That what we are talking about is an eternal perspective and not an earthly one. That we as Christians view things through eternity, not through this temporal reality that we live in. Which is why we seem crazy. You should. You should own your crazy. It's one of our mottos here. We own our crazy. This is what we do. This is who we are. We believe in a world beyond this. And all of this is just shadow. So the author gives us the warning, and then he reminds us of our perspective. And if you've got, I don't, if you're visual, I did a coloring sheet for you. If you're visual, you've got a picture of this throne with a scepter, like we talked about two weeks ago. And he's over the world, right? So Christ is subjected to the world, but not yet. The world is subjected under Christ's throne, but not yet. And the reason I say not yet is not because Christ is not already king, not because he's not already God, but because we don't see it that way yet. What we see is a world in calamity and a world that looks like chaos. I emphasize it looks like chaos. God is still God, no matter what, doesn't matter how wicked the world is, how strong the world seems, he is still God. Indeed, he meets with me in very uncomfortable ways all the time. And he will meet with you in very uncomfortable ways all the time. And then you'll say, why did you meet with me that way? And he will say, I'm God. I do what I want. And we will go... I forgot for a minute. So, this perspective that the author wants to remind you of is that we see the world through Christ as king, and though it is not subjected to him yet in physical reality, like we don't see this as a physical thing, it will be. It is going to be. And look at what he says. The world to come. This word is oikominoi. Yeah, it confuses me too. Oikominoi, meaning community. There's two different words that are used for world, and there's, there's a very specific reason to use this one, and that is to say this, that this world is a populated world. 
Christ is going to come back and rule over a populated world. He is going to physically, tangibly rule over a populated earth. Think about that just for a minute. Right now, he rules spiritually. He's sitting in heaven on the throne. He is king, all glorious. And he rules. But we don't see it. It's not a physical reality for us right now. We don't see it. We don't. When we look out, we see corruption of politicians. We see wickedness running rampant. We see all these things, and we are like Habakkuk. And we cry out to the Lord, Why, God? Why does injustice reign? And God goes, Oh, don't worry. I am working. You just can't see it. I am actively involved in this world. You just can't see it. There will come a day when he is literally sitting on a throne and you are on the earth. And he is literally here, present. That's what this verse indicates. That's what this indicates. This is the Hebrew author's way, the author of Hebrew's way of saying, by the way, God wins. Jesus wins. And he reminds us to have this perspective of what we are talking about is not now. We're talking about heaven and the eternal perspective and God's perspective on things. We're not engaging in this temporal perspective. We're talking about things much greater than this. And it follows a warning. The next Couple of the other times that he reminds us of our perspective are in verse one, chapter one, verse six, which we read uh, a couple weeks ago, when he says all the angels of the he has all the angels of the world, all the angels worship Jesus uh, when he brings him into the world. All the angels worship him, so it's reminding you, pushing you to to think about how the heavenly beings worship him. Then again, in chapter six, verse five, he reminds you after the third warning. In this book, he reminds you yet again of a heavenly perspective. And then again in chapter 13, verse 14, he reminds you that you are to have a heavenly perspective here. We focus on Christ because Christ is supreme. Because Christ rules all things. And it's imperative that you understand that Christ is supreme because of what he's about to talk about. Because if you don't get that Christ is supreme and worthy of all your worship, you're going to miss the value of the next thing. So again, how do people become king? How do people become king? Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. Now just a a caveat. This is a poetic thing. The author of Hebrews is well aware that this is Psalm 8. Like he gets it. He's not confused. He knows what he's quoting. So... Uh, this is a psalm that a lot of Hebrew children memorize. A lot of, indeed, a lot of Christian children memorize this psalm. It's not abnormal. He's got this down. He knows his author. He knows his audience knows it. This is, he's not confused. He says, it has been testified somewhere, because he's being poetic. It has been, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, he quotes this psalm, and we've got some some value here to, to think about, some things to think about. First, uh, remember that he is saying that Jesus is better than angels here. And what he's 
articulating is that angels don't get the title king, they don't become uh, Lord, they are not made to receive worship, and they are made instead to serve people. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 14. They're made to serve those who would come to salvation. Now, he chooses Psalm 8, verse 4 through 6 to articulate the reality of Jesus becoming us, which is brilliant. Because Psalm 8 is an immediate cry back to Adam. It's an immediate shot back to Adam. So, just by way of review, let's remember what the overarching problem is with our world. Adam and Eve were made in the garden. They were made together. They were made perfect together. They were made to exemplify the image of God on this earth and then spread that out over the earth. They sin. They reject God's word. They choose to call something good that is evil on their own. They take the fruit. They eat it. That separates them from God. Now, think about that creation. When God made Adam, what does he say? He says, I will make, let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the earth. Let them rule over all things. Let them spread out, right? Let them take dominion over everything. So he says this about them, making them a little lower than the angels. Putting them on the earth. Making them a little lower than the heavenly beings, which are literally higher. If you were to draw a picture, you'd have heaven, earth, Adam and Eve on the earth. Literally higher. Making them a little lower than the angels. And they sin against God and turn their backs on Him and lose the image or mar the image of God beyond recognition. They mar His image. They, they destroy the image that God had created. Man, woman, God. Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Trinity. You've got the same picture in humanity supposed to be representative of God's image on the earth. So we're supposed to expand image across the earth. Just a fun fact, a fun thing to think about here. What delineates man from the rest of creation? What separates us from them? There's all kinds of answers. I just want to throw that one out there. You can write it down. You can ponder it. Fun thing to talk about at lunch. What is it that separates man from creation? What is it that makes man the image of God and creation not like what makes us different than a squirrel? Some of us, nothing. But most of us, everything, right? Right? Most of us, there's a lot that's different, right? I'm glad you're awake. So, so what makes us different? Well, we have these, these different things, and people will say all kinds of things. I'll just throw some out there. Theology, artisticness, the ability to be creative, the creation ability itself, um, all kinds of stuff. But I'll let you think on that. It's a fun thing. Jot it down. Talk about it at lunch. So he uh, points us back to Adam immediately, calling up this psalm that every Jew would have known, referred back to Adam, who was made for a little while lower than, that, than the heavenly angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, making him the image of God, and put everything into subjection under his feet, and then the next step that every Jew would have thought would have been, and they lost it. 
And they gave it up. They surrendered it. We've surrendered it. We gave it away for sin. We decided we were going to decide what was good, and we decided that we were going to choose what was good. We took it, and we ate it. And if you read Paul's logic in Romans 1 through 3, not only did we, not only are we uh, in agreement with Adam and Eve, and we bear their sin, but we also choose to do it all on our own. We choose to reject God all by ourselves. And there's that great verse I can't help but mentioning, even though um, Romans 3.21, but God shows His righteousness apart from the law. By works of the law, no man will be saved, but God shows His righteousness apart from the law in Jesus. How beautiful and powerful our God is. Then we have this, this psalmist, this Hebrew, author of Hebrews, using this psalm that talks about Adam that all Jewish people believe was a reference to Adam and his creation. And he goes, by the way, that psalm is about Jesus. By the way, Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Death comes through Adam, and we see in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, death comes through Adam, and life comes through the second Adam, Jesus. So through one man's trespass, all men have sinned and are guilty. Yet through one man's righteousness, all men can be saved. Just believe. Romans 5, 12 through 21 articulates that even further. And the author here then takes this phrase of Adam, pointing out Jesus became man, immediately connecting Jesus to us. He connects Jesus to us, saying, He became like you. You were supposed to be like Him. You were supposed to be made in His image. You were supposed to declare the glory of God, the radiance of God the Father. You were supposed to be the glorious image of God on the earth. And you, and we, I, we sin. And Jesus comes to take our place as the substitutionary atonement, saving our souls. All we have to do is believe. All we do is believe. Trust Christ Jesus for salvation. He has been your righteousness. He has been righteous on your behalf. And He takes your place. So, proposition number one here. Chapter 2, verse 8b. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing out of His control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So proposition number one, Jesus is in control of everything. You don't see that, but it's true. Jesus is in control of everything. So we've got the visible picture of what we see, and we've got the invisible. And the invisible, what we don't see all the time, is that Jesus is in control of everything. We don't see it. Just because you don't see it, 
doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you can't lay your eyes on a physical throne where Jesus is talking and, and commanding and, and doing actual physical things to, to change things, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus is in control of everything. Indeed, if you've been around this church long enough, you know that he tends to show up and ruin stuff for us, which is his way of fixing the things for us, and they become a whole lot better. And we see him in control of things. We have story after story after story of when God has intervened in our prayers, in our personal lives. I mean, sometimes we're just not paying attention and he comes out of left field with some weird thing like glitter. All over the floor. Or a song that wasn't supposed to be playing, that's not even in the record player. Or the CD player, I don't know, whatever. Or a picture that wasn't finished that all of a sudden is done. All these various things, God intervenes and works. He is active. And I just say that for no other reason than for you to know He is literally in control of everything. You're not out of His hand, you're not spiraling out of control, though it feels that way. Though this world looks that way, it's not. The, tr the truth is that we need to bring our minds in line with Scripture. And we trust Scripture over our experience. If your experience contradicts Scripture, then your interpretation of your experience is probably wrong. If your experience contradicts Scripture, then your interpretation of your experience is probably wrong. Scripture is what we derive our interpretation of life from. It is where we get our worldview. And I just have to say this. It is crazy. Scripture is crazy. But it's true. So we move on and we see, we don't see it yet. This is, this is the, the thing, the proposition, Jesus is in control of everything, but at present we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus is made lower than the angels for a time. Not forever, but for a time. He is going to be conquering king physically he is going to be Lord physically. I mean, in present. Like, just think for a minute. You're going to get to see Him. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've repented of sin and said, you know better than I do, Lord, and you have gone after Him, you have followed His way, you have, you have become a Christian. I don't know how else to say it. You've become a Christian. If this is true of you, if the Spirit has regenerated your soul and you have, you've gone to follow Jesus, one day you will see Him. And it won't be in, in fear and trembling. It will be in glorious reunion. And you will see Him. And you will lay crowns at His feet 
And the works that you have done here on this earth will be works and objects of worship to him. We don't see that now. It seems like evil runs rampant. But we trust that Jesus is Lord, not because we see it, but because we know it. We trust that Jesus is Lord. and We see that he's made lower than the angels for a little time, and in his lowering, he's crowned with glory and honor. Glory being the accurate representation of reality. Do you remember what glory means? It means the accurate representation of reality. I'm going to say it like I do all the time. The glory of a frog is that it's slimy, wet, and gross, and it croaks. The glory, huh? Croaks. Do I always say hops? Well, I said croaks today. You can write in hops. The glory of a frog is that it's always slimy, gross, and hops. The glory of a man is that he's sinful and he denies uh, truth. The glory of a baby is that it cries and it eats and it can't change its own diaper. This is glory. Glory is the accurate representation of what something is. Jesus is crowned with glory. Glory of what? Glory of God. He is the radiance of God the Father. He is the glory and presence and character of God. He is the revelation of God himself. Think about that for a minute. When God decided to reveal himself to you, he did it through a carpenter's son, through the lowest of the low, through a homeless rabbi who came and washed the feet of a bunch of crummy fishermen. God shows you his character and his nature with a guy that is laid out on the floor. The guy is laid on the floor you. The character of God is one that humbly loves and conquers death through sacrifice and love. That is incredible. That is amazing. And he's crowned with glory and honor. Honor being praised, being that, that light that would shine out from something. Honor being worthy. He's crowned with glory and worth. Now pause just for a minute to breathe here. As we read this, we can't rush past this reality that Jesus is made lower than the angels and then crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. He shows the reality of God and God's love and character and nature Because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death. Just breathe that for a minute. God has revealed himself and allowed you to know and reverence him. By dying for you. By dying for you. I don't mean dying like he, you know, was shot and that's it. I mean, he took the weight of the wrath of God, the weight of the wrath of the law, everything you have ever done and ever will do upon himself. 
He took it upon Himself. All those times we looked at God and said, I know better than you. Jesus took all those times on Himself, became those things, and then died in your place. That's how He validates His kinship. That's a king I'll follow. There's no fear with that king. There's no death with that king. There's no destruction. There's only, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? Died in your place. Just breathe that in for a minute. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes on sin and dies for you. Only you need to repent and believe. God knows better. He is God. I am not. You are not. So the purpose of this proposition one, first, the first proposition here is now putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then we have the purpose for it. Here's the purpose for this proposition. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, though in control of everything, suffers death so that he could stand in our place before a holy, righteous King, God, Lord of all creation, who sustains the universe and has a law that we have broken. Jesus takes our Place. We call this in theology substitutionary atonement. Jesus is our substitute and dies on our behalf. He tastes death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. Now this is applied here. Look at this. It's it's imperative. This is done for the purpose that he would taste death for everyone, which is applied by the grace of God. God takes the substitutionary atonement that Jesus offers and he applies it to you. Saving you from sin, regenerating your spirit, and bringing you to life, and then calling, pulling you to himself. God applies this. Jesus is better than the angels because he became man to save us. Because he became man to rescue us. Jesus is better than the angels because though he's in control of everything, he comes down and dies to save you, to save me, to rescue those who would believe in him rescue us and bring us to salvation. 
Now, we have another hour in this sermon. So what I'm going to do is read the rest, explain the proposition, and we'll pick up next week. I knew that this was going to happen. Proposition number two happens here in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, again, you've got that same image of control uh, over all things, but this time it's, it's the things exist for and by by God and for God in bringing many sons to glory. So in the end of his last proposition, the result of his last proposition, bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is made complete or the revelation of God is made complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, God becomes man. Jesus became a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Listen, the adversary has no power over you. Why? Because Jesus has destroyed him. He works now through lies and subterfuge. It's all he's got. Another place in scripture says he has been stripped of all his weapons. He has been disarmed. All he's got is lies. And he uses them like crazy. But rest in the confidence of this. He has no power or authority over the Christian. Christ has accomplished the work on the cross. And you have been free. Therefore, or I'm sorry, verse verse 16. For... Verse 15, and he and deliver all those through who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation or atonement or sacrifice for the sake, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, that you would believe and recognize that Jesus validates his kingship by becoming the lowest. Every other king that you read about in history, it is victory through the fist. But Jesus, it is victory through humiliation. He lowers himself that you would be called sons and daughters of God. 
Oh, that you would believe that message. Oh, that you would hear it, believe it, know it to be true, and find the victory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and trust you. We pray that your glory would be made known through your church here. We pray that you would delight in us as we sing praises, as we study your word. And Lord, that you would remind us that as you do each week, that that you became man, that you gave us your body and your blood for atonement, that we remember every week your glory. Lord, be glorified. Amen.